Well, it's, it's, it's good to be up here with everyone this morning and uh, a great day if you're new with us, whether on live stream or here. Uh, what we want to do is uh, we've started a series. The series is entitled Faith and Sexuality, Telling a Better Story. Really telling God's story. And we really believed uh, that it was important for us to speak into this, uh, particularly uh, in our culture today where there are so many questions, um, so many ways that people are looking at issues around faith and sexuality, where we've already seen a lot of divisions, a lot of arguments, a lot of divisiveness. Um, And so uh, we felt that the Lord said we need to do this and we're doing it, that the youth group is doing it. Uh, We're looking... Uh, later on down the road to have opportunity to follow up with this with regard to questions that come up. If you have questions, we certainly want you to feel free to email Josh or myself. Uh, If you want to do it anonymously, uh, we put a box out there and you can do it with uh, an index card. But we just really want to be involved because this is something we believe is going to take time. And what we're doing now is we're starting with what we call the building blocks, the the foundation on which to have courageous conversations. If there's not a foundation, then those conversations become very chaotic and skewed. So that's what we're trying to do. And I was thinking about this because uh, as I was beginning to prepare a sermon on marriage and singleness, I, I began thinking to myself, you know what, Josh and I bit off a little bit too much here. Uh, I began to realize, how in the world am I going to do a marriage, on, uh, a sermon on marriage and singleness, and in many ways uh, be able to answer certainly what are many questions out there. And I realized, no, what we're doing is we're doing the building blocks. We're doing the foundation. We will answer questions, but we need to understand the foundational truths. So that's, that's sort of where we're at today. And before I preach, I do want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be here with us. So uh, join me in prayer. Father, we are here this morning because of who you are. We're here this morning because you've done a work in our heart that we could not do. You've regenerated us. You have given us light and life and salvation in Jesus. In that, Lord, your word now speaks to our hearts, and we desperately need your work to speak into the insanity of our world to give us sanity. And so I cry out for my own heart as I preach this word, Lord, that I would be emptied of myself, Lord. I'm thankful for the things that you have worked in my heart, and I'm thankful for these foundational truths. I'm thankful that these truths have worked in my heart, in my life, have brought conviction and repentance and forgiveness. And I pray now, Lord, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you will continue to illumine our hearts, that we might see with the eyes of the Spirit your truth in new ways. Do that even now, Lord, we pray, as we look at this word together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, last week, Josh started this series. Uh, The title of the sermon was Looking at the Groundwork for Love. And he started with God in creation. 
a home we were made for was that first uh, point. Men and women were made in God's image to be image bearers, to demonstrate who God is by stewarding the earth, being fruitful and multiplying, love as God loves. Our bodies were meant to carry out this image, and this was our DNA and gave us purpose. But men and women fell into exile by believing the lie of Satan, that God was lying. He was holding back from them that they could provide a better home than God had provided. And this was an act of rebellion. This desire to be God of their own lives shattered and twisted the image of God in them. It was broken and cursed. And now there was a searching for identity and a shame in their sexuality. That's sort of where Josh was last week. He went from that to our union with Christ, which we'll probably come back to every week. But we want to rest in this is where we're at, this idea that we live in a culture with a people who truly are searching for identity and have shame in their sexuality. And so we have two definitions we've been working with them. If you put that first one up there, expressive individualism, that would be great. Expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core and that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression and relationships. And anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. So basically the idea is that we're God of our own lives. For us to be authentic, we need to have the free expression of our feelings and emotions and the things that we believe are good for us in our own life. And we're going to live them out in an authentic way. And if somebody comes against that, then they are someone who is coming against me and my identity. The second one, sexuality then, um, is sort of defined in this way. Sexuality is about your sexual feelings, thoughts, attractions, and behaviors towards other people. You can find other people physically, sexually, or emotionally attractive And all those things are a part of your sexuality. And we are speaking how the expressive individualism coupled with sexuality, what that produces in our world, especially as Josh talked about last week, where there is shame and a searching. So that's where we're moving from. And we're going now to be looking at a marriage and singleness in that context. But before we do that, I just wanted to put a picture of myself up there. If you could put that up there, that'd be great. If you have it. Nope. Oh, there it is. Now, look at that picture, right? I mean, this was an expression of expressive individualism and sexuality, right? So this is me at about 19 years old. Uh, I am at a point in my life where I am expressing myself. You can see that pink jacket, white bell bottoms, pink bow tie. I mean, I was fly. Now, don't try to be like me. You're not going to be able to do it. But the reality of this was, is that I was in a place in my life and a place where my culture had just come out of what they called the summer of love in 1968 where the whole hippie movement was moving forward, this whole idea of freedom, of love, and sexuality, 
that we're no longer held to the bondage of a, an archaic rule of waiting for marriage to have sex. Uh, we could do anything we want. We could go get high. We could go trip. We could do anything as part of our self-expression. And so I went into this thinking, this is the greatest thing in the world. My life is going to be different. The world's going to be different. You know, peace, all this good stuff, right? But then as a few years went by, it didn't work out that way. I saw friends die of overdosing. I saw broken and abusive relationships. I saw the destruction of families. I saw children left behind. And this whole sort of wonderful idea of expressive individualism began to break down in front of me. And I was left with this searching and the shame that came with some of the lifestyle think, choices that I had made in my own life. And that's where this wonderful story comes in that we're going to be talking about today. But here's where this expressive individualism leads to. At the end of the book of Judges, it makes a declaration on that generation. It says, in that generation, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I truly believe that is also what we're seeing in our generation and in our culture. Because ultimately, expressive individualism will lead to that. To where I do what's right in my own eyes. It doesn't matter about anybody else. And so today we're going to be looking at this and looking in the context now, coming back, looking the big picture and say, okay, in this context, we're living in a culture that has expressed this in many different ways, and we want to look at marriage and singleness. But here's how we're going to do this. Here's the first thing I need to ask you here today. Do you believe that there is a creator? Do you truly believe that there's a creator? Maybe some of you here are struggling with that idea. Maybe some of you believe in naturalism. You believe that everything's by random. You sort of say, well, yeah, evolution and randomness, that's sort of the way it is. Well, I want to, if you're here today with that, I want to encourage you to hear the sort of mindset and perspective of a world that has a creator. Here, here's why it's, it's important. If you were to create something and you brought it, maybe you were invented something, you brought it to a show, what would happen? People would look at it. And you would either have an explanation of what that was, what it's supposed to do, what its purpose is, because you designed it. Isn't that true? Has anyone ever done that in school or anything like that? Yeah, I think some people have. Um, what would it have been like to see the first engine, the first car engine? Like, just all of a sudden, there was this engine in front of you. You'd be like, what the heck is this? Like, what's... But then the inventor came and began to explain it, the design and what its purpose was. Well, if you believe in a creator, then you have to believe that a creator has designed things for a purpose. And that's what we want to be looking at today. We want to be looking at how God designed things, right? So we know that if you look at the Genesis account, that God created the heavens and the earth. 
God's creation had the design and purpose. The land and the sea, the sun and the moon, the animals and the plants. And then in the climax, it says, in his image, male and female being joined together in marriage. See, God has revealed a narrative. But what's happened in humanity is expressive individualism has played whisper down the lane. Anybody ever played whisper down the lane? Yeah, what happens at the end? Is it the same story that started with shaking your head? No. And literally, that's what humanity has done in its expressive individualism is that here is God's narrative, but from generation to generation, an expression of individualism, that story gets twisted, <laughs> it, gets, it gets made different, and at the end of the day, 2022, that narrative is lost. There's so many other versions of that narrative. And so what we want to do is we want to go back and we want to go back to God's narrative, to God's story, which we believe is a better story. What was the original narrative? We want to go back and we want to look at that. So here's the next question that comes up, right? How do I know it's God's narrative? How do I know it's God's narrative? Well, would you be encouraged to know that Jesus confirms this? If you're here to someone who believes in Jesus, then you believe who Jesus is. God in the flesh. The one who brings light. The one who's all wise. The one who has a heart of integrity. He would never lie. So this is what he says in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus clearly confirms that God said this at the beginning, that the Creator Himself said this about man and woman and marriage. So we have confirmation from Jesus. So if you're here this morning, this might be the first time you've heard this narrative. I remember a few years back, there was a late night show host who decided they were going to go out on the street and begin to ask people biblical questions. One of them was, do you know who Adam and Eve were? And people had, I, literally, everybody they asked, nobody knew who Adam and Eve were. I was shocked. So the question is, maybe you're here today and you've never heard God's narrative and this is an opportunity for you to hear it maybe you're here and like the rest of us we've been listening to the cultural narratives for some time and maybe for us there's confusion 
maybe we've tried to put one together with the other and we haven't been able to really see how, how it all works out. Maybe we've been moved to another perspective, having not even known that. Well, here's what I want to encourage us to be doing this morning and through this whole series. Let's hear God's narrative together. Let our minds and hearts be open to God's narrative. Take some time to reflect on it. Ask our questions out of the foundation of his narrative of things. Let's see if we can start somewhere where we can actually have conversation that will produce fruitfulness as we move forward. Psalm 19 says this, that the word of God revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. It light to the eyes. It's trustworthy. It's more precious than gold and it's sweeter than honey. So now as we go into God's word, let it do that for us. Let's hear God's narrative on marriage and God's narrative on singleness. So we're going to start in Genesis 2, reading from verse 18 to verse 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God has formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So far the reading of God's word. So what do we see here? Let's look at the way this story unfolds. God has created all things, and man certainly has been the last of his creations at this point. And he sees that man's alone. He has Adam name all these animals. They're coming in front of him, and he's naming them all. That would have been very interesting to see, wouldn't it? And at the end of that, there was no one suitable for Adam. There was no one suitable for him. So what does God do? Puts Adam into a deep sleep. And what does he do at that point? He takes from his rib one of them out. And out of that, he molds another human being, a female. One that is like, but also different. It says he made a helper. I think sometimes people have taken that word helper and have put the label inferior next to that, which is, which is ludicrous. Helper does not mean inferior. 
The scripture tells us that God is our helper. Is he inferior? God is our helper in so many different ways. So there's nothing about inferiority in this at all. The two are together. And one helps the other. When God presents this woman, when you think about it, here comes this female. Adam is seeing her for the first time. And uh, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, what we don't get from that reading is that this was the first love song. That he actually was so in awe that this actually came out as a love song. It was poetic and it was an expression of how deeply he was feeling in the context of meeting who he called woman for the first time. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then what happens? What do we see happen in this story? God is the initiator. God institutes marriage right there and then. God institutes marriage. He's the initiator. He's the first father bringing the bride to the bridegroom. I have had the joy of doing probably 75 marriages or more over the years. And one of the great times is when the bride is walking down the aisle with the father. And the bridegroom is waiting. And there's this moment when you say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father says, usually my wife and I do, and takes the hand of the bridegroom and moves that hand and puts the two together and then walks through his seat. This is what God did. God in instituting marriage, this is what he did. He initiated. He was the first father bringing the bride to the bridegroom. And this was a design. This was a purpose in creating male and female, leaving father and mother and cleaving to each other. Leaving father and mother and cleaving to each other. How amazing is that? And here's these words, leave and cleave. Leave and cleave, this one flesh, they point to a sacred covenant rooted in the promises that stand against every storm. As long as we both shall live. This is the idea behind it. It's a reflection of God's covenantal love. And so here here he is. God has done this. This is God's narrative. So I, I just want us to know, sometimes it seems so simple, but... When you begin thinking about all the narratives out there, when's the last time you really thought about this? Because it moves to that. They become one flesh, a new creation. They become a new creation. And this is what the heart of marriage is. If you can put that picture up just to get the idea. One plus one equals one, the mystery of marriage, right? So what did he do? Out of one, he made two, and now out of two, he makes one. This is what God does. This is this wonderful part of this mystery that is moving forward. And and here's the thing. 
You can take that down. This is where sexuality finds its purpose. The ability to create children, being fruitful and multiplying, sex is intended to be experienced in a marriage relationship. It is an expression of a one flesh union. God designed the intimacy of sex to be a good and pleasurable experience. And I know the teenagers were talking about this this morning. A good and pleasurable experience. Certainly, we see a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, that speaks about this. This wonderful expression of union and one flesh which points to something even greater, and we're going to be talking about that mystery. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, how many of you have ever seen that movie, Jerry Maguire? What's one of the famous lines in that movie? What's that? That's one of them, you're right. Anybody else? You complete me. You complete me. How much of our culture has bought that lie? You complete me. You make me one. I don't need anything else. And yet, what God is doing in marriage is pointing us to something even greater, and that is union with Christ, because it's in union with Christ that we truly are complete. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But that's what it's moving towards. I love what Wayne Mack says in his quote because he's sort of bringing that out. According to the Bible, the marriage act is more than a physical act. It isn't an act of sharing. It is an act of communion. It's an act of total self-giving wherein the husband gives himself completely to the wife and the wife gives herself to the husband in such a way that the two actually become one flesh. And that was the intention, sort of the protective yard in which sexuality was intended. Now, there's many, many questions, certainly, that we're going to have that come up with this, right? Now, I'm not here to answer those questions right now. I'm here to say this is the foundation narrative that God has laid out there. Out of this, we can answer many questions. That's not where we're going this morning, right? Where we want to move now is we want to look at God's narrative on singleness and then look at this mystery as a whole. So when you think about singleness, you need to go back into redemptive history and realize that in the Old Testament, God is primarily building his covenant people through procreation, right? You're a family you have children. Abraham, I have called out. You're going to have as many as the stars in the sky. And there's this idea that it's going to be out of Abraham and his children and his children's children and those generations who have been called out, who belong to God, and they are the people of God. And so there's something very important about the name, the inheritance, and the preservation of God's people. But also... We see this when we did Malachi a few weeks ago. When they married farming women and they were drawn to other gods, one of the things that God said when he spoke to them was, one of the reasons that this is such a blasphemy to God is that the children 
We're not going to be raised up in the covenant promises of God. And therefore, a generation of children would be lost. But then into this reality comes a prophecy from Isaiah 53.10. Listen to this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Something has changed. We're moving from one covenant to another covenant, which God has prophesied would move to this new covenant. In other words, the new people of God formed by the Messiah, will not be formed by physical procreation, but by the redemptive work of Jesus and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. There's a movement taking place here. And it's going to come to fruition in Jesus. Here's what John says in John 1, 9 through 13. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Do you see this amazing transition that's now taking place? It's no longer by procreation, it's by regeneration that we're now part of the family of God, that we're now the children of God. When he talks to Nicodemus in John 3, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus says, How can someone be born if they're old? And he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And so here is this amazing transition from that ethnic group that represented God for thousands of years to the new covenant where it's no longer about the family procreating the family of God, but now through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit being born again, anybody who comes to Jesus is now a child of God. So what does this have to do with singleness? Well, I think it has a lot to do with singleness. Because first of all, what we now see is faithfulness to Christ defines the value of life. Faithfulness to Christ defines the value of life. All other relationships get their significance from this. From their faithfulness to Christ, the relationship with Christ, no family relationship is ultimate. But relationship to Jesus is. And out of this truth, Paul can say that singleness is a gift. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 8. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Paul is basically saying both being married is a gift and singleness is a gift. There is no distinction between these. 
And there's a mindset out there, right? If you're single, it means you're missing out on all the necessary benefits of life that you get from being married. And a lot of what that means most of the time is sexual intimacy, a partner, companionship, family. But Paul speaks into this mindset. Listen to what he says later on in Corinthians 7, verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and individual devotion to the Lord. So what's he really saying? He's saying being married isn't all that it's cracked up to be. There's a lot of responsibilities to being married. There's caring for your children, caring for your spouse. You're being pulled in many different directions. As we know, these Tensions can produce more loneliness than being single. It can produce hardships. It can produce a, a sense of why in the world did I get married in the first place? This is not what it's all being cracked up to be, but nobody here has felt that way. Well, what he's really saying is, in many things like this, we have less flexibility to serve the Lord. The reality is a person who is single has more flexibility, not to just to do whatever they want, but to live a kingdom lifestyle and serve others. Now, does this not, does this not include someone who is single from experiencing intimacy of friendship and of family? And nor does it exclude them from having children. Listen to this in Mark 10, 28 and 30. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying... When we are moving in that direction, I can be a single person and I can still have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children. What does he really mean by that? He's saying it's a gift to do what only single men and women in Christ can do in the world, displaying this devotion, your singleness. You do it in expressing the truths about Jesus, salvation and the kingdom. And many times, they shine more clearly through singleness than through marriage. And certainly we have many illustrations of that. But the idea here is, is that as I'm moving out and serving the kingdom, I'm moving into people's lives. I'm moving into lives where people are coming to the Lord, where it isn't just young people coming to the Lord, but older people coming to the Lord. But the reality is, is that I become a spiritual father and I become a spiritual mother to people. You know, we don't hear too much of that in our, 
our circles, but it, it, down in the African-American community, uh, when I'm down there with my brothers and sisters, they're always talking about their spiritual father and their spiritual mother. There's so much honoring of that. There's this deep sense that we have these children that God has brought into our midst as we have shared the gospel with them, as we have stepped into their lives. Uh, we become that to them. Thessalonians says, Paul says, well, we were like a mother. And in other parts, he talks about like we were like a father. And, and so as in singleness, you can have even more children and more brothers and sisters and more friendships and more relationships of intimacy. That's sort of the idea, right? So we want to see this in, in a different light. So both marriage and singleness testify to the gospel. Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel in that it models the covenant promises that God has made to us in Christ. And singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel because it shows us the reality of marriage, what marriage points to, which is our relationship with Jesus. And so I'm going to just move quickly to that deeper mystery that's revealed. This sort of brings it together for us in a new way, the idea of marriage and singleness. They're, they're signposts. If you could put that up, that'd be great, the picture of the signpost. And what do signposts do? They point us in a direction, right? They're telling us, this is where you're going. Yeah, this is where it's leading to. And uh, signs are very important. Well, that's the same thing with marriage and singleness. They're pointing us towards a deeper mystery. And it's expressed in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But here's where the mystery is. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There's something deeper that's going on for the people of God who are now in union with Christ. Revelation 19 tells us this, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. There's something deeper. There is a much bigger narrative and picture from Genesis to Revelation, it's a book of love. It's a book of covenantal love. It's a book of pursuing love, of a non-giving up love, of loyal love, of sacrificial love, of a love for people, for those that he can call his children. Now, through the regeneration and salvation and redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we now become the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. This deeper mystery that in union with Christ, all these things are just a pointing, a symbol to something that's so much greater, which is that we are now the bride of Christ. Listen, it says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, brothers and sisters, these particular ways in which we express ourselves, whether it be in marriage or singleness, are pointing us to a much deeper mystery, and that is that we are those who believe as children are the bride of Christ. Here's what Spurgeon says. In heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God. But there is one marvelous exception to this rule. In heaven, Christ and his church will celebrate their joyous marriage. Surpassing all human union is that mystical cleaving to the church for which Christ left his father and became one flesh with his church. Hallelujah. There is something so much better, powerful, a love that never, ever will fail, that brothers and sisters, we are married to Christ. We're in union with Christ. The things that we do are symbols that point to that, that God has given us. And, I, and I'm going to end with Romans 8, 18 through 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We are living in a cursed world, are we not? This world is what? This world is aching, is waiting, an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We who have been born in the Spirit, are in union with Jesus, are the children of God. How are we to be revealed in our world today? How is the world going to see God's love? It's going to be through the signposts that point to that. Marriage and singleness. How we live our lives in the world. So we need to ask ourselves some serious questions. Does our marriages reflect our union with Christ? What I'm saying is, men, are we loving our wives as Christ loves the church? And would that then lead our wives to respect us What does that look like in our world? What would it look like in our world if, say, 95% of the church around the world, marriages reflected that? What would that look like in the brokenness of our world? For truly, when we look at what's going on in our world, we can see, sadly, that our marriages are not reflecting that for the, for the most part, right? We know there's much divorce we know that people are 
having affairs. We know that there's abuse going on. I mean, we can go through the list of things. But he gives us this picture and narrative of marriage for a reason. And the same with singleness. What is it like to live a life where it's not about sexuality and the way the world is presenting it, what I'm going to do in my time, but it's about I can use my life to reflect God's kingdom in such a way that people will see Christ in the way that I live and the way that I act. See, Romans 8 tells us that the world's waiting for the children of God to be revealed. So let's look at this together. Let's look at this narrative together. Let's, let's concentrate and focus and pray when you look at the narrative of marriage and you look at the narrative of singleness, begin to ask those questions. And then how does that interact with the things that are going on in our culture, the things that are influencing us? And how do we then speak into those things? How do we love? How do, how do we uh, truly move in as Christ will move in? That's where we're going the next couple of weeks. We're going to be asking those questions in the next couple of sermons. But we need to work out of this foundation, brothers and sisters. So let's do this together. Join me in prayer this morning. Father, I just want to thank you that in this moment we could come to you. We could thank you for your narrative to us. We can thank you that you speak to us. We can thank you, Lord, that um, you give us foundations and truth and your design and your purpose. We ask now, Lord, that we might live out of these in a new way that we might be a reflection, Lord, of your great love for your people and your church. That we be a people of love in this generation of brokenness, Lord God. Bless us now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing to finish.